Thanks, Ev. Good morning, everyone. We are starting a series in Ephesians, and we've given the title there, Our Identity in Christ. And uh, I hope and pray that we, as we go over the next eight or nine weeks that we will not only get a grasp and understanding of who we are in Jesus Christ, but because of that identity and because of, uh, of that knowledge and understanding, it will impact the way that we live. And this morning we are giving a bit of an overview of the book of Ephesians, an introduction to Ephesians, and I've titled this sermon, Rich Christians. Paul uh, was imprisoned around AD 60, and uh, the book of Ephesians is commonly known and referred to as one of Paul's most theological, alongside Romans, probably one of his most theological uh, letters written uh, by the Apostle Paul. The man who bashed and murdered Christians has a, 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 was a converted in an experience on the road to Damascus where he was uh, stopped by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the man who was the hunter become the hunted. And the man who put Christians into prison was now in prison himself. for the gospel and in prison he pens this letter alongside some others that are known as the the prison letters or epistles along with Colossians and Philemon. The city of Ephesus was a very prosperous city. It was uh, on, on the west side of what is known as Turkey now just on the other coast opposite um, Greece where Athens is. Uh, you could get across to Greece through the, uh, the Mediterranean Sea there or the Aegean Sea. It was a major centre of, of pagan worship. Uh, Ephesus had one of the seven wonders of the world known as Diana or Artemis, a goddess whose image supposedly fell from the sky and where it fell they built this temple. It was known as a a architectural gem. It had hundreds of pillars. The actual building was 110 feet wide and more than 200 feet long. And the Diana cult and worship was all about fertility and sex. And it was very popular in the day. A lot of money was made in the town of Ephesus. It got to do with this, this worship of Diana. If you go to Acts 19, you'll, you'll see the silversmiths. Uh, Demetrius is named as the one who opposes Paul when he brings the gospel to the people there in Ephesus. He opposes him because he's saying, this is our living. We're making so much money out of this. People are coming in and through Ephesus to see this monstrous temple, one of the wonders of the world, and they're making and crafting these images that they're selling. very possible that this letter is circulated among other Asia Minor churches, perhaps with Ephesus because of its size, it starts off in Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus starts in Acts 19, when Paul comes across, says, 12 people who laid his hands on and the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they are stated in verse 1 as saints, 
And it is mentioned that not all transcripts actually have said in Ephesus. That's why it's believed it could be a circulated letter. But they're recognised as saints. Not because of something amazing that they've done or a miracle that they've performed and been canonised by a church. But is the phrase used, is the term used of people that have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because something God has done which is amazing. They were recognised for standing up for the truth and what they believed in. They were recognised as being faithful, albeit in Revelation 2, they're rebuked for forsaking their first love as a church. And Paul stayed there for a couple of years. He spent time preaching preaching in the in the synagogue as he would always do and then declaring the truth of the gospel to the public. There was a lady around a hunt who died just over a hundred years ago in America and she's well known in American history as America's greatest miser. Very tight with her money. And it's said that when she died in 1916, just over a hundred years ago, she had an estate value of $100 million. It's a lot of money now. It's a lot of money today, let alone a hundred years ago. You have a hundred million dollars now, I sort of tried to look it up, you'd be around the 500th richest person in Australia. It's a lot of money. This is over a hundred years ago. But it's said that Miss Hetty Green was so tight-fisted with her money that she ate cold porridge every day because it was too expensive to heat the water to warm it. Even today, the price of electricity and gas has gone up, hasn't it? <clears throat> can probably relate. Her son had a severe leg injury and it became so severe because she was delaying treatment trying to find a free clinic. She delayed so long that it had to be amputated at the time. In fact, the story goes on that she got so angry one time arguing with someone over spending money that it actually brought on her own death. She was arguing the merits of skim milk because it was cheaper than full cream. Now that's a strange, strange lady, strange person. Everyone knows full cream is much better than skinny. (laughs) You do not get into skinny. But to die with $100 million in the bank and be too scared to heat up water and not fix your leg's son and argue over milk, it's not really an understanding of using your resources, is it? Uh, I found this report online uh, from a number of years ago from the LA Times. Uh, A man and a wife who died in their 50s and they were found in their apartment and the autopsy revealed that they had died of malnutrition. And when the police had gone through their apartment, they'd found plenty of these little brown bags that had money in them. Now, I'm not making any speculation about where those little bags came from because in the movies these days, little brown bags usually got to do with corruption. But they had all these little bags with money in them with about $40,000 cash. It just seems ridiculous that you'd die of malnutrition 
you got all that money laying around the house. What I want to tell you this morning is that you're rich. And you may be sitting here talking about the price of electricity and gas and you don't know, Josh, the bills that I've got. and Or you might be thinking, I'm gonna, you can't talk about, it's not the prosperity gospel message, is it? Well, no, it's nothing, to, it's nothing like that. You're not rich because of money. I'm not talking about money this morning. You're rich because of who you are in Christ. Ephesians tells us there is no need to suffer. There is no need to suffer from spiritual malnutrition. There's no one born into more spiritual wealth than any other. For those who have believed in Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord, we are chosen by God. The creator of the universe chose you and me. He chose us for salvation. He chose us to be holy and blameless, to bring praise and glory to his name. He chose us to understand the mystery. He chose us to be a recipient of all his riches. And there is no limit. It is unending. And you can't earn it. You never will. You never have. But it is yours because as we'll see today and in the coming weeks, you are rich and these riches are laid out for you because you belong to Jesus Christ. You can break the book of Ephesians into really two sort of sections. Chapter 1 to 3, the first half is, is laying a foundation, is telling us of our identity in Christ, who we are in Christ. And the last three chapters are, are telling us about how we to live in Christ. If this is who we are and this is what we have at our disposal because we are in Christ, then this is the way we are to live. The theology and the practice. Theology of our faith. The foundation of our faith and the practical aspect of living the Christian life that God has called us to live. You see, many religions tell us you have to live a certain way in order to receive. That all the works and all the stuff you've got to do, that comes first. You have to do all these things and follow all these rules. And then there'll be something heavenly waiting for you. But Ephesians is telling us the opposite. That's not how God works. 1 verse 3, chapter 1 verse 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Chapter 2 verse 4 to verse 10 
It says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's not do good works and you might receive something heavenly, but rather believe by faith in Jesus Christ as your Saviour and Lord and receive that which is heavenly. You receive a citizenship of heaven. Earth is no longer where you belong and your home and all you know. We realise that we are here just for a temporary short time, but really we are citizens of heaven. And the Spirit of God comes and lives in us. God dwells in us and we in him. And we now experience life in a completely different light in Christ. We have a purpose, a different purpose for living. We live differently, think differently because our identity isn't in ourselves. It's not about what I want out of this life but it's about what does Christ want for me. It's not about what I can do but it's what Christ has done and is doing in me. His riches are our riches and his resources become our resources. His power become our power. And where he is, we are with him. And who he is becomes true of us. And what he has, we have. And our lives are on display to tell the world who we are. And Ephesians is telling us who we are is an image of God. We are an image of who Christ is. So while religion says good works lead to good things, you have to work, 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 work and there might be something for you at the end there. God says good works are a result, a consequence of the riches and the blessings that you've already received when you came to faith in him. Chapter 1, 7 talks about the riches of his grace. Chapter 3 and 8 talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. 3.16, his glorious riches. God is unloading his riches on us in the book of Ephesians. And it's pretty exciting. As you read through the book, it's pretty exciting, isn't it? Yesterday, Rach came into the lounge room she picked up some jeans and found a ten and a fiver in the pocket. Oh, we're excited. We get excited about fifteen dollars. It's pretty exciting. You know, when you, um, you know, I, I don't know what it's like for you guys. We uh, we're not great savers of money, so our um, you know, our visit 
in July, August to the, the accountant to look at our tax return is, um, it's like our savings. And so we get excited when he says, oh, you got a thousand dollars to come back to, or you got, you know, you got a few hundred dollars. Yes. Pay the red joke. <clears throat> you know, but the riches that we're talking about this morning and, and over the next eight, nine, ten weeks, whatever it may be, it far outweighs whether it be millions of dollars that you get excited about. It far outweighs any monetary value that the world just craves for. There's no comparison to the riches that God has in store for us and makes available to us. Through the book of Ephesians, the word grace appears about 12 times. His unmerited, undeserved kindness and favour toward us. His grace. And it is the backdrop, it is, it, it is, is that, that that all these riches God pours out is behind all of that, God's grace. And his glory is used eight times. Riches is used five times. Fullness or being filled seven times. The word inheritance four times. And the key to everything is that it's in Christ, which you'll read over and over again close to 30 times throughout the book. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Dad loves to go on about how he's spending our inheritance as his kids. Whenever he goes overseas or on a holiday or just out for dinner, sometimes he just sends a text to say, oh, we're heading out to this place, spending some of your inheritance. <clears throat> but, you know, whenever we talk about monetary value or possessions, worldly possessions, there's always a limit always a limit there's no one in this world who has unlimited resources unlimited money even the richest have a limit and when we come and talk about the riches of God there are no limits it is unending his riches cover all of our debts and we don't put any dents into the account of God. A part of discovering our identity in Christ, in chapter 3, Paul talks about a mystery. A mystery is a truth that is previously unrevealed that is revealed. And this mystery which has been revealed to him from God is a mystery is the church. Well, what's so mysterious about the church? Verse 6 says that the Gentiles are heirs together with the Jews, members together of one body, and here's that saying again, in Christ Jesus. The book of Ephesians presents the mystery that is the church. It is revealed by revelation from God to Paul. And verse 5 says something in other ages that wasn't made known. It wasn't made known for 
the generations before, but it is revealed now to Paul that the Gentiles are fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ by the gospel. That the Gentile and the Jew would be one and united in one body in Christ. It is the first time we, we see the body, the term, the word body being used to speak of God's people. Of course there has been lots of different terms used through the Old Testament to speak of Israel and their relationship with God as his people. And Paul speaks of the church in his writings continually with this metaphor, the body of Christ. There are three ways in which God handles a mystery. Number one is that God never tells. There are some things that God never tells. There are some secrets he never reveals to anybody at any time. You don't know them and I don't know them. Nobody knows them. In Deuteronomy 29 verse 29 it says this, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. There are some things he does not reveal. We'll never know everything. Our brains wouldn't be able to handle everything. We might know 1% of what we could possibly know. I don't know. We might not even know a half of a percent. I don't know what that is, but there is so much that God knows. Well, God knows everything. So there are some things that God knows that He does not reveal that we will never know. So there are things that God will always keep secret, there are things that only He knows. The second way God handles mysteries is that he reveals to certain people in all of history. Well, who are the super elite? Who are these super spiritual people that he has revealed things to? Well, the special people, I'd say, are believers. God's word is revealed through the prophets and through the Old Testament and it is put together what we have known now as the word of God. It's God's revelation to his people. Psalm 25:14 says the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. Proverbs 3:32 says his secret is with the righteous. Amos 3, 7, it goes on, he reveals his secrets unto his servants. So those who fear him, the righteous, God's people. The fact is there are some things that nobody knows and there are some things that only believers know. Romans says that there are things that non-believers know of God. It says that so that they are without excuse. So non-believers do know things about God. It's not like they know nothing about God. They know something of the majesty and wonder of God. But God reveals 
some things to his people. And thirdly, and this is what we're looking at today, there are some things which God keeps secret from everybody, some mysteries that God has kept secret from everybody until a certain time. And that certain time comes here in the New Testament. So God keeps some things secret permanently. He reveals some things to all of his people throughout all history and some things are kept secret until the New Testament when he reveals mysteries to the New Testament people, the New Testament church. We know things that the Old Testament saints and believers didn't know. They didn't have the New Testament for start. A mystery revealed by God. Peter actually says Old Testament saints were searching for what this thing was that they were writing about as they prophesied about what was to come. So there are some things that God has kept secret and as a mystery through all history and revealed at this time in the New Testament. And one of those mysteries is the church. That the church would come into existence. That they would be one body incorporating Jew and Gentile. That's something the Old Testament saints never saw. It wasn't revealed to them. It's a mystery to them. A mystery revealed through Paul. If you had lived at this time in, in 60 AD, if you had lived at this time, just to grasp a bit of context, you would understand the way that the Jewish people would worship God. In their, in, their, uh, in their temple in the temple the, the Gentiles and, and every, anyone could go into the outer court in the temple but then there was this wall a dividing wall which, which meant the Gentiles couldn't go past it was just for the Jews as they got closer and closer to where God was Gentiles couldn't get any closer and in that next section the Jews could go and then again as you went in it was just for the Jewish men and then as you got to the the Holy of Holies in the middle there we know about the the priests that were allowed in there once a year but they, the, the Gentiles would have had this understanding of, of this is the way Jews worshipped their God and in fact, if a Gentile trespassed any further past this wall, the, the Roman government allowed the Jews to carry out such sentencing as death, even for a Roman citizen. So from a Gentile point of view, they're putting their life on the line. To mingle. It seems like they would put their life on the line to go worship the God of Israel with the Jews. And it wasn't a done thing. And the Jews would have that same mindset. Perhaps a pride and ego that only they could get close to God in order to worship him. It wasn't a thing to mingle and mix a Jew and a Gentile to worship God. 
So with that in mind, Paul says in chapter 2 and verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Jew and Gentile, one body, as Paul puts it, joined together in Christ. In the church, there is no dividing walls. In the church, we come together as one. There's no dividing walls between the spiritual elite and the backsliders or there's no dividing walls between race or wealth. We are one in Christ Jesus and the promises and the riches and the resources of God are made known to all who place their faith and trust in him. In verse 20 of chapter 3, Paul says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Forever and ever. Amen. Now that you know who you are in Christ, Paul comes to this section, how will you live? Now that you know the riches of Christ, the inheritance that is yours, the resources from the heavenly realms that are made available to you, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to live? How are you going to treat one another in the church? We go into chapter 4, 5, 6. In light of what you know of who you are in Christ, how are you going to treat each other in church? What is the community going to see about you here in Montmorency, about the way you treat one another? Because you know what's made available to you, you know who you are. What does it look like in the way we treat each other? How will you handle sin that has so easily took hold in your life before? Now that you know who you are in Christ and you know the riches and the resources that are made available to you and you know the inheritance that is coming, how are you going to handle sin on Monday morning that so easily has taken hold of your life? 
How are you going to love and respect your wife and your husband in light of what you know of who you are in Christ? How are you going to treat and love your parents? How will you act as a boss or an employee tomorrow when you go to work or as a student as you deal with a teacher and at school? How will you behave and how will you act in light of the knowledge that you are in Christ? We're going to look at more into those things in the coming weeks. Perhaps this morning we just take a moment. I hope the Spirit has challenged you as he has me about these things. You know who you are in Christ. How will you live? How's it going to affect you this week? You just take a minute to think about these things between you and God and, and if there's something you need to tell him or confess to him, ask him. You do that now before we close in prayer. Lord God, in light of who we are in Christ, think about the words we sang this morning here. Here we are to worship and bow down. Not just here in this place, in this building, but in this whole day and wherever we go from here and wherever we go this week, that we would worship you offer ourselves our whole selves as a living sacrifice to you understanding that in Christ we have all the riches and the resources we need to live the life you've called us to a holy blameless life that people would see our good deeds and praise the Lord God in heaven. We thank you and we pray that you would continue to challenge us with this as we leave this place today. In Jesus' name, amen.